0: What 90s Hollywood film featured drag performances only three years after RuPaul's first album Supermodel showcased a young actress who would go on to star in an iconic television series the following year and was written and directed by a legendary improv team? If you're not screaming yes queen by the end of this episode I didn't do my job. Welcome. You're listening to Real Charlie Speaks, an LGBTQ podcast spinoff of the film and television review blog, Real Charlie, looking at movies and TV from a gay male perspective since 2009. I'm your host, Philip Barr. Each month, I select a classic queer film, television series, or creator. I talk about how the subject spoke to me when I first discovered it years ago and how it stood the test of time. Join me now as we begin another episode adventure. We are, of course, talking about Birdcage, the 1996 Mike Nichols-directed, Elaine May-adapted, big-budget Hollywood film starring Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, Gene Hackman, Diane Wiest, Dan Futterman, Callista Flockhart, Hank Azaria, and Christine Baranski. This episode's film was suggested by my friend and podcast mentor, Brad Shreve, who gave me my first podcast gig I didn't do on my own. I had been and continued to host a library blog for work, Fairfield What Are You Reading, our monthly gathering of library staff who talk favorite books they've read recently. After being a fan, Brad asked me to review books for his podcast, Queer Writers of Crime. I've also been interviewed by him for his podcast, Queer We Are, And all of that helped me launch my own podcast, the one you're listening to right now, Real Charlie Speaks. I think Brad wanted to see what I could do with a really big budget Hollywood film, so here goes, and this one is for you, Brad. Birdcage is an English language remake of the 1978 French film Lacage Cage au Faux which is in itself an adaptation of the play of the same name. And of course, those of you who have any sort of interest in Broadway or musicals, Le Cagio was adapted into an English-speaking Broadway musical, which won huge amounts of awards and launched careers on and on and on. The film actually marked the first screen ad ad collaboration of Nichols and May. Nichols and May had been a comedy duo in the 1950s and 60s, and this was the first time they actually collaborated on a film together. Birdcage debuted in the number one spot in the North American box office and remained there for the following three weeks. It's really seen as groundbreaking as it was one of the few films from a major studio at the time, 1996, to feature LGBTQ characters at its center. Birdcage's cast received notable praise and was awarded for the Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Performance by a Cast in a Motion Picture, and the film received an Academy Award nomination for Best Art Direction. So before we jump into the film, you know, I see the 1990s as really the explosion of queer film in not only Hollywood, but in independent film as well. If you think about 1996 being in the middle of the decade, I wanted to sort of look back on where does Birdcage actually fit into the history, the chronological history of LGBTQ film. So if you will... Hang in there with me. I'm just going to quickly rattle through, chronologically, a number of LGBTQ films that happened in, I I, I want to say in the 1990s, but really I have to jump back and comment on five that were in the 80s that sort of brought us into the 90s. And then, of course, the 90s exploded. So 1980 was cruising, if you can believe that. It was that long ago. 1982, Victor Victoria, phenomenal film. 1987, we all already talked about this film in a previous episode. My favorite film of all time, Morris. 88 was Torch Song Trilogy. 89, Longtime Companion. 91, My Own Private Idaho. Also 91, Edward II, also talked about here on Real Charlie Speaks. 92, The Living End. 92, The Crying Game. And then in 93, there were a bunch of films, Philadelphia, obviously big, huge Hollywood film. Uh, On the opposite end of that spectrum, Zero Patience was a really smaller indie film that was absolutely incredible. The Wedding Banquet, Ang Lee's sort of foray um, before broke back into LGBTQ content. 94 brought us a whole bunch of films, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which Real Charlie Speaks has already mentioned in a previous episode. Go Fish in 94, Priest, Heavenly Creatures. And then in 95, we have The Incredibly True Adventures of Two Girls in Love, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, Jeffrey, Wigstock, Stonewall, The Celluloid Closet, which was the documentary that was based on Vito Russo's seminal work about LGBTQ content and then 96 finally the bird finally excuse me in 96 bird cage arrives so 96 was also about bound and beautiful thing 97 was love valor compassion midnight in the garden of good and evil chasing amy bent i think i do just Back and forth between Hollywood films and indie films, a huge year. 98 was High Art, Gods and Monsters, Get Real, Billy Hollywood's Screen Kiss. And then 99, Boys Don't Cry, Flawless, and Trick. So as you can see, the 90s was really a heyday for not only sort of Hollywood dipping its toes into LGBTQ content, but really um, queer cinema burst onto the scene in the 1990s in independent film. And these were films that were written by, directed, created, and starred LGBT people that wanted to get their stories out. The opening image of the film is water, and the uh, helicopter or ship or whatever is going really quickly, and then you see the Miami skyline, and you start to hear this song that's being played by the orchestra, and you're like, I recognize that song. And then you're like, oh my gosh, it's Sister Sledge's We Are Family, I have to say that the film really got its money's worth from that song. That's all I'm going to say. You have to sort of watch the song to understand that. But it's just wonderful. It's just a perfect song, really. To It it captures the essence of this movie um, and the morality of this movie so perfectly. So the streets are mobbed. It's South Beach. It's, it's Florida. There's a line waiting to get into the show. Um, obviously, the name of the club is called Birdcage. Then you sort of pan through the crowd and into the club. There's six drag queens that are performing. There's lots of people sitting at tables. They're drinking. They're watching the shows. This was really a world before RuPaul's Drag Race. So clubs like this were really the only place to see drag entertainment. And so that's why I think when you, when you sort of feel the energy of the opening of this film, you have to think back to that time period of like, It was a big deal for people to go watch drag entertainment. Now, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race and a lot of other shows that feature drag performers and drag content are just all over. Like, you can see them literally anywhere. You can see them on YouTube. You can see them on Netflix. You can see them, you know, all over. Robin Williams Armand shows up, and he's walking through the club, and it's pretty obvious that he's the owner of the club, so he's making sure everything's okay, and he is working his way towards Nathan Lane's character, Albert, or Albert, Um, at the French, you know, the, these were the characters' names from the French version, so Albert, they call him because he's American, And we find out very quickly that Albert's drag persona is Starina. And Starina is obviously the star. She's the star of the show. So meanwhile, on stage, there's a minor number featuring drag queens in native headdresses. This is probably the first, like, ooh, point, you know, moment in the film. Obviously, in today's world, we wouldn't do something like that because most of us know that appropriation is really not cool. Uh, from there, it's a, after a lot of sort of backstage, back and forth, back and forth with Nathan Lane's Albert freaking out. Um, he's being just a total drama queen. He's like, you know, hiding because he doesn't want to perform. He's saying that he's too old. He's saying that he's too fat. He obviously just needs to be coaxed into his stardom. He He's just acting like a real diva. And it's very funny. I mean, Nathan Lane, I would say Nathan Lane really carries this show. It's really his show. Robin Williams's performance is very understated in a way that um, really allows Nathan Lane to shine. And it's really a testament to both actors that their balance um, came about in this way, because it really is just amazing to see Nathan Lane shine in this film. Hank Azaria plays Armand and Albert's houseman, Agador. You know, Hank Azaria's performance is part of a very long history of a lot of straight men playing gay roles. It's been criticized over the last decades. Some of them do an okay job. Some of them do a horrible job. Luckily, today we're living in a world where that's actually being rectified. If you think about Rustin starring Coleman Domingo, if you think about um, any number of out queer actors this year that are um, playing gay roles, it's really exciting. I have to say that all that said, Azaria is amazing in that role. He is phenomenal. And I, I... I know other people could have done it and I obviously know that there are gay actors out there who have done could have done this role. But Azaria gives his all and there's just really not a moment that he isn't hysterical and um, his physical comedy is really amazing and uh, he's just a, a secondary character that really um, adds such dimension to the film. Um, shortly thereafter, Dan Fetterman arrives. He is... Um, Armand's son, Val. Um, it's interesting in the setup, they have him arrive, and he and Armand, played by Robin Williams, are interacting together in a way that you assume that they're having an affair because obviously it's 1996, and you know, how many out gay men that run a drag club with their partner would have a child. So when you finally realize that they are father and son, it's because Val uses the word pop with him. Armand had a one-time tryst with a woman named Catherine. They had a baby together. She didn't want the baby. She wanted a career. He decided to raise the child himself. He met Albert, and they raised Val together. So Catherine hasn't seen Val since he was born. And then meanwhile, I'm going to say the word meanwhile a couple of times uh, today (laughs) simply because The film really does bounce back and forth between different moments. Um, So meanwhile, in a different part of the country, in the Midwest, Calista Flockhart is also telling her parents that she wants to get married. She plays Barbara, Val's fiancée, Gene Hackman and Diane Weist play the parents, Kevin and Louise Keeley. Hackman is a senator. He's a very conservative senator. Think, uh, you know, the religious right. Think, um, the moral majority. He is sort of one of the leaders of that, mid, or, you know, mid '90s um, situation, for lack of a better term. So this really does set the plot soaring forward, because now, obviously, we've got a plot going on here. We've got a real story happening that's unfolding in front of us. There's two kids. One's 18. Calista Flockhart's character is 18. Futterman's character is 20. So they're super young. They're super inexperienced. But they want to get married. But she's got these parents that are super conservative, and he's got these parents that are a gay male couple running a drag club. Jump forward the following morning. We see Albert. He's outside. He's strolling through the outdoor farmers market in South Beach. Everybody knows him. Everybody's really sweet to him. He's just breezing through the scene, you know, chatting with people. He's so complimentary of everyone, um, you know, enjoying their produce, enjoying their uh, sweets in a bakery. You know, Albert. Reads very feminine, and one of the wonderful parts of this film is that the initial setup of the, of the film, which is pretty much this scene, um, shows how much the computer com, shows how much the community really loves him. They embrace him, they celebrate him. No one's making fun of him, and I'm sure. The people in the audience, especially back in 96, were probably laughing more at him than with him. But the tone of the film is that they're all laughing together. They're not laughing at him. They're not making fun of gay people, etc. He comes home and Robin Williams' character, Armand, is reading the paper. And Nathan and Robin kiss each other when Elber comes back from shopping. It's so sweet. It's very... Innocent, um, but it's very logical. And it was really lovely to see that given the time period, given 1996. Again, meanwhile, (laughs) back in the Midwest, Hackman's character, Kevin, is the vice president, as I mentioned, of the Coalition for Moral Order. The founder, his, you know, the guy that he reports to, has just died having sex with an underage black prostitute, their words. The race aspect of this is problematic, and this was sort of my second cringe moment for the film. I felt like the rest of it was handled okay, um, but they really did sort of include the the, the blackness of the character Um along with the underage part, along with the prostitution part. So they're race shaming, they're sex shaming. The underage part is obviously completely bad and wrong. Um, but two out of the three are not really d- handled very well, especially for this time period. The conservatives are having a really rough time of it. Someone comes up with this idea, I think it's Diane Weiss' character, comes up with the idea that they should sneak away to South Beach because the press has is, has encircled their home and plan the wedding, meet the parents, and that the wedding will be so pure and so beautiful and virginal, even though these two have been sleeping together for last year, they told their parents as much, that it'll get them through this horrible negative press that they're dealing with the fallout from the founder. Meanwhile, back in South Beach, flipping back and forth, Val starts asking Armand some really inappropriate questions because he's now realized that Barbara and her parents are coming to South Beach, and he's got to figure out a way to sort of make this, us uh, make this setup seem normal, quote unquote, so that her parents will allow her to get married. Um, even though she's an adult at eighteen and can do it on her own, but you know with his with their blessing blah 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 et cetera so he, the the worst thing that he asks is he asks Armand to send Albert away for a few days and then of course he has to degay the entire house because the house has like erotic sculptures and it's very ornate and over the top and it's sort of a combination of like you know tropical and um you know high camp basically is what the what the um the way that the house is decorated. It's very funny. The the house, the decoration and the set design for the house is just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful, um, but it is like really over the top. You know, the whole thing with this, with Val and, you know, it's really creepy. I mean, he's, first of all, he's 20 years old. He's doing something that he probably shouldn't be doing. He shouldn't be getting married at this age. But then of course it's like, okay, um, you know, you, you know, my parents who are these two gay guys, have given me this amazing life for 20 years. They've supported me. They've loved me. Now I want them to pretend like they're not who they really are. So it felt creepy to me back then, and it feels even more creepy to me today. But again, I have to say, keep in mind that this story is adapted from the French films and the French plays. So there's a very long history Of hiding the reality of the situation, which ends up turning the story into a farce. And even after all these years, you have to take a moment, you have to suspend your issues and your cringiness. And you do that because you will get to where you need to be in this film if you just take a breath. And trust me, the far right assholes do not win in this film. So take a breath. Relax. I had to do it last night when I was watching the film and realize that the ending is gonna be happily ever after for everybody. And to the credit of Elaine May, who direct who did the um the screenplay, just when you really start to worry about all this cringiness of Val taking over and degaying the house and blah blah blah. Armin comes out with an amazing monologue that says to Val, like, I'm not going to change for anyone. It's taken me 20 years to get this comfortable. Um, I Yeah, I'm a middle-aged fag, but I'm happy about that. It's a very powerful moment. He says it and then agrees to help Val, but you realize that he is his own man. He's his own gay man. He's very comfortable with this, and he is going along with this farce and this charade because he loves his kid, not because he's ashamed of being gay. So the line is very clear, and it's really May's writing that I love about this. Sidebar, Nathan Lane wasn't out of the closet when he did this film. It's kind of hard to believe that. Um, I mean, I feel like everyone knew Nathan Lane was gay. Theater people knew he was gay. The gay community knew he was gay. But he wasn't out to the general public, kind of like Anderson Cooper took a long time to come out of the closet. Jodie Foster took a long time to come out of the closet. And most people knew they were queer. But it just took a long time. So that's where we were when this film was released. Now, you can Google Nathan Lane birdcage outed. And read about how Robin Williams helped swerve the Oprah interview when Birdcage came out away from Lane's sexuality. You know, I was out in 96, um, but a lot of people weren't and a lot of people still aren't. It's actually kind of shocking the amount of DL, the amount of download that's going on in this day and age in 2024. It's really, I'm really still completely shocked. But there you have it. Another aside... <laughs> You know, that was the sidebar. Another aside is that there's a pretty healthy amount of eye candy in this film, uh, no matter who you are. There are a lot of women and there are a lot of men in thongs on the beach, on the street, on the sidewalk. You know, it's South Beach in the 1990s. And if you think about the Barbie movie that came out last year, it's kind of like that candy-colored... Candy coated, you know, beautiful, um, satura- saturated, color saturated, uh, world that Barbie inhabits. It's sort of that in Birdcage. It's South Beach, it's the 1990s. I gotta just say, ah, South Beach in the 1990s, goddess bless them. Seriously, it was like so much fun seeing so many guys in thongs, like zooming through, and it wasn't guys that were out of shape, it was like all these beautiful models. I don't know where they found them, if they were just locals, if they were actually from modeling agencies, but it was a lot of people on the beaches and a lot of people on the streets. It was really, really fun. So back to the story. Again, like I mentioned, Val asks Armand to have Albert leave for a few days Armand decides that he's going to actually introduce Albert as the uncle and he's going to teach Albert how to be more masculine. There's a hysterical moment with mustard and spreading mustard. There's a John Wayne thing that's really funny. It's just, you know, this whole scene is sort of showing you how ridiculous it is to ask people to be something that they're not. It just, um, it just is very, very funny. So when they realize that's not going to work, they decide to enlist Val's mother to make the night more realistic. So there's this whole scene, um, you know, with them going to meet Val's mother, Catherine, who's played by Christine Baranski. And she is sort of very, um, you know, she's a very confident Businesswoman, she still has sort of erotic feelings for Robin Williams' character. Nothing ever happens, but it's just, it's just again, more sort of funny moments. And you know, 1996, they have to throw some straight, um, you know, sex in there. So there's no sex, but some straight, I guess, like flirting. There's a lot of flirting on her part, and then there's a lot of avoidance on Williams' part. Very funny. The, um, there's some a very intimate moment between um Albert and Armand where Robin Williams' character really explains in real time and and out loud how much he he means to him in a way that today they would have just gotten married to show that but back then you had to jump through all these hoops to sort of prove that I'm with you through through the bitter end because marriage equality was, you know, a long – it was decades away at this point. Um, and they were out and they were a couple and they didn't care what other people thought and they had a business together. So there were all these sort of legal things that he brings up about the business and whose name is in the business and all this. And it was very touching, really touching and a great addition. Again, thank you to Elaine May for that addition to the script. So the farce kind of continues. They redecorate the whole house. There's this giant, and I mean giant crucifix that is in the middle of the living room. They end up sort of turning the whole place into a monastery. There's these, you know, really tall, chairs around the dining room that sort of look like they belong more in a monastery than they do in a a home. Um, All the walls are covered because the walls have all this crazy wallpaper on it. So they just cover all the walls. And it's just very, very, very funny. Um, The Keeleys show up and everything is going okay. But Catherine ends up getting stuck in traffic. And so somehow Albert decides that instead of showing up as the gay uncle, instead of showing up as a straight uncle, instead of leaving and not showing up at all, he comes out in sort of Barbara Bush drag, for lack of a better term. That's when the insanity really kicks in. Because Kevin, the character played by Gene Hackman, believes that Albert really is the mom. It's just you know, only in a movie could this happen. It's just very funny. The dinner's a disaster, but the senator doesn't care because he's really smitten with Albert and he thinks she's really sweet. You know, if you're seeing this for the first time, there's a moment where Agador can't wear shoes. He's barefoot all the time. So when he's in shoes, um, there's sort of a lot of sight gags that happen. Um, again, Hank Azaria was just, just genius in this role, really genius. There's a musical number um, that gets the Kelles safely out of the club, without the paparazzi finding out. And of course, yes, the gays and their allies save the day for the hate mongers. So I wish all of the damn jackasses in Congress could watch this film and realize that we always save your damn asses. so please stop destroying our country. So they get out. Everyone's safe. They're away from the press. And as the credits roll, an interfaith wedding takes place sometime in the future with the groom side of the family filled with his parents, Albert and Armand, friends, of, found family, you know, other drag queens, other gay people, and it even includes Catherine. So it's a very sweet ending, just a very sweet ending. There's, you know, there's a lot this film could teach the drag haters today. I'm really glad that I decided on this film uh that has drag content because just like Priscilla which we talked about in an earlier episode I really think that these films speak to the climate that's going on today the left has less crises because we live more honestly there's no doubt about it i'm not saying that everybody's perfect there's no of course there's no way that everybody's perfect you know i mean i we can point to bill clinton but the reality is, is if you add up the numbers, you know the crises and the chaos and all of the ca- all of just the mess, it happens a lot more on the other side because they're they're creating these standards that nobody can live by that are ridiculous, and then they're the ones that are breaking all the rules and then they get caught. So it's just it's just crazy. You know, there's so much more I could say, but you know, you get it. The moral of this movie and of our lives is please just stop using your religion and your belief system and the morals to hate or to control or to suppress. Let people live. As long as no one's hurting themselves or others, as long as people are leading with love and respect, embrace them. Love and respect. Embrace them. That's the moral of Birdcage and that's the beauty of Birdcage. Was this a favorite of mine when it came out in 1996? it it wasn't. I liked the film. I enjoyed the film, but it certainly was not like, I didn't think about this film over the years as like, oh, I should watch Birdcage again. I loved it so much. Is it a favorite of mine now? I have to also say no. And when I say no to those two questions, I'm not saying it's a bad film at all. I hope that what you got out of this was that I really love. I really enjoyed this film. And I think this film is really important. I think it's important for a lot of different reasons. Priscilla is on my top 100 films of all time. Birdcage is not. But Birdcage is still important. It's noteworthy. It deserves a place in LGBTQ film history. It brought together real Hollywood creators, big Hollywood stars, and it created a film that in all of its silliness teaches us to love and embrace each other in our differences again love and respect i can't say it enough so that's a great message no matter what era we're viewing birdcage in i'm thrilled that i was able to do this Um, it was really wonderful looking back on this film remembering certain things not remembering other things seeing some really really incredible comedic performances particularly from nathan lane and hank azaria but everybody got in on it diane Weist. You know, her deadpan timing is like nobody else. Um, I didn't mention that and I should have um, because she comes out with some really good zingers. And just to see Gene Hackman in a comedy is also sort of worth it. And um, to see Futterman and to see... Callista Flockhart being very young and sweet and the kids in the in the uh, you know the younger kids in the film was a lot of fun just a lot of fun as well so so thank you Brad for uh, encouraging me to really pick a big hollywood film um, i'm so happy i got to do birdcage today for everyone coming up i have so many more classic queer films i want to showcase for you the next four episodes will which are the only I've I've mapped out the next four episodes. They'll continue focusing on outstanding examples of LGBTQ films from decades gone by. In the meantime, thank you so much for tuning in. Please check out my other episodes. Check out my blog, Real Charlie, where I blog every other day on everything that I watch, whether it's LGBTQ or not, with a gay male gaze or gay male perspective. And other than that, I want you all to uh, go out into the world, enjoy yourself, be kind to each other. Remember that love and respect that we learned from Birdcage. It's so, so important, um, especially as we get through this, uh, this difficult year that's coming up um, in the United States in particular. Lots of love to all of you. My name is Philip R., and this is Real Charlie Speaks.